Mosab Hussein Yosef. He grew up as a Muslim. From the earliest of age, he was reading the Quran. He was not only reading the Quran, but he was memorizing the Quran and studying the Quran. He'd have his daily prayers. And he followed the way of Islam as faithfully as he could as a young man. He lived in the West Bank, Ramalia, Palestinian towns. And um, he had a spiritual interest, a religious interest. A man walked up to him one day and gave him a New Testament. And so, Masab Hussein Yusuf, he began reading that New Testament where you would figure you would read the New Testament, beginning in the book of Matthew. And a few chapters into Matthew, with his interest in reading, just to find out what it was about, he came across what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is a message that Jesus himself spoke. It's in red letters, as used in our Bibles today, and it was a message he spoke to people as they were gathered on a mountainside. And in that Sermon on the Mount, he came to this verse in Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Mossab said that he was thunderstruck, as he put it. The words of Jesus struck a chord in him that he had been looking for his whole life. Jesus said, love your neighbors, not hate your neighbors, Not disparage, I mean, love your enemies, not hate your enemies, disparage your enemies, or kill your enemies. And over a course and a period of time, he became a Christian. Now, what's so interesting about this young Muslim man? He was the son of one of the founders of Hamas. Hamas, one of the militant terrorist organizations, His dad helped start it. And here he was, finding his way to the words of Jesus, thunderstruck because the words of Jesus contained in them startling truth that his heart was hungry for. We start a series today entitled, He Said What? (laughs) The shocking statements of Jesus. He has a lot of shocking statements. You see, Jesus was not a politically correct person. He wasn't a religiously correct person. He was a kingdom correct person. And Jesus spoke words that represented truth in a realm that is startling to us today because it's not the world that we live in. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, if you look that up, you'd say, well, where did it say that, Jesus? Where does it say hate your enemies at in here? There's no scripture that says hate your enemies. But in Jesus' day, it had moved to that kind of thing. Well, if you're going to love your enemies, then you've got to be opposed to those. I mean, love your neighbor. You've got to be opposed to who your enemies are. And so that's why he said, this is what I'm hearing. It's been said amongst your religious leaders and the people of today. He says, but that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is a radical kingdom message. Flipping the tables. Startling words. Love your enemies. That's just the first of many statements we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead where you go, what? 
did he say and mean by that? Now, here's the deal with this first one this week. Love your enemies. We're sort of used to that statement. We're in a church environment. Some of us actually read Jesus's words. And so it's like, okay, yeah, he said that. But can you comprehend what that meant then? What did that mean for that young son of a Hamas leader to see these words that said, love your enemies? The infidels need to be killed. Anybody that's not a part of an Islamic faith and, you know, worship in the manner that Islam worship, then they are to be ostracized. They are to be dealt with. Differently, cruelly. And here Jesus speaks these words, you need to love your enemies. Now you may not find yourself identifying as much with that young man. And he's written a book, by the way, Son of Hamas, if you ever want to hear it. He, um, he's done interviews. In fact, I was looking at one this week, and the guy's got a pretty strong vibrancy to him. He's got an edge to him that would cause you to stand back and go, okay, He's not only got an edge to him as it relates to his faith in Christ, but an edge as it relates to um, some of the world events that are going on. But I think all of us in here this morning could identify with the fact that there is someone in our life that we'd prefer just not to talk with right now. You got any of those people? Because you see, you have to sort of identify who the enemy is up front. And the enemy can be anybody that we feel is in opposition to our goodwill. That's how you can define an enemy. And Jesus wasn't talking these big accolades like the enemies overseas or militant enemy. I mean, this is personal enemies. Should we take a few moments and write a couple down on the back of our cards? I won't make you turn them in. It was a challenge to me this week because there are some people I would say, well, I know they're not out to destroy me, but they aren't out for my goodwill. They aren't out for my best interest. And so I sort of see them a bit as an enemy. And Jesus says, Carrie, you need to love your enemies. So Jesus teaches this on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and uh, he goes on and he says this. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He's referencing in that aspect that, that God shows no favoritism. All right. Jesus Christ died for all people. There's not a person in this room this morning that Jesus Christ does not love you. He created you from the beginning of time. He redeemed you from your fallenness and sin and he offers you the gift of hope and eternal life if you are choose to repent and follow him he has no favoritism he doesn't say i'm picking you and picking you and picking you and then the rest of you you're on your own good luck he desires that all would be saved so also when it comes to extending his love he desires to see his love extend to all people and so that's why it says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous goes on and says, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And then this other shocking statement, actually, we won't get into, but he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What's up? <laughs> really? Can you imagine seated on that hillside as Jesus was imparting these words of instructions, the Sermon on the Mount? 
he was articulating a radical way to live life, a kingdom way to live life. That's why I like what it says here when he says, you know, love your enemies. He says that you may be children of your father in heaven. You and I are called into a different dimension. And I tell you what, the world will take notice if you live as a child of the father in heaven and his kingdom family. There's not a lot that surprises me in the world. When I start to realize that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a lot that surprises me in my own life if I realize, you know, as a sinful individual, what I am prone to do and where I'm prone to fall. And so a lot of things are predictable, even some of the harsh violence and the bickering and the being at one another left into ourselves. Sinful human beings will self-destruct one way or another. I was reading an article this week of when Hitler, he committed suicide, you know, to end World War II in 1945, I believe it was. And the thousands of people that committed suicide upon the news of Hitler's death. And you go, how evil and destructive was the adversary working through that season of life? So, so terrible. But that's not us if we're children of the Father in heaven. We're to be wired a different way. We're to allow the Holy Spirit who we've invited into our life to work out the life of Christ in a different way. And so it's very reasonable that Jesus would stand up in bunch in front of people and us be able to share his words here today, the red letter words, love your enemies. But I want you to know something about this series. This is not going to be an easy one. It's easy to say love your enemies. It's hard to. To do it. And how do you define if you're actually loving your enemies? Just if you have a, a fleeting thought of, oh, I guess maybe they're not as bad as I thought. And then you move back to just stewing about some things. I thought it was interesting. One of the members of Rooted was a few weeks ago. We were Rooted's Bob. And he threw out just a, a quick comment that said, yeah, he says, you spend your time thinking about a good comeback to somebody that happened 10 years ago. Why does our mind do that? It's like, oh, I should have said that 10 years ago when they said that. I would really got them. It's like, why do our minds do that? Why do our souls do that, right? Jesus says, love your enemies. It's a shocking statement, especially in our culture that seems to be getting a lot more heated with its rhetoric and it's pitting of one people group against another people group, whether it's a political uh, in, a belief or a certain social issue or economic issue. Maybe it's uh, closer to home. It's a, it's a business decision or somebody trying to one-up another person in your workplace environment. We have enemies defined as people who we do not think are interested in our good welfare. Jesus says you love those people because left to yourself and your own mind and your own spirit, you will just continue to gnaw and build roots of bitterness and resentment and, and you waste a lot of time. And Jesus just says, come back, plumb line, love your enemies. There's um, maybe a lesson we can start out with from many years ago. I think it was around five 597, 
B.C. That's a few years ago, don't you think? From uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a um, prophet. Israel had sinned and wandered from God, and they had uh, been exiled into um, Babylon. There had been a couple exiles, actually one in 605, where the exile took place, and they um, took Daniel and some of his friends there. Eight years later, King Nebuchadnezzar sent people back to take on some more exiles. But he left behind Jeremiah, and Jeremiah the prophet, he would speak things. And so we find this in Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Seek peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to God for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had uh, a foreign army come in and seize my city, take my people, murder people, rape people, destroy the city, destroy the temple, and take a bunch of people to a foreign land, I would not be very happy with that group, and they would definitely be on my enemy list. But here's Jeremiah, he's saying to the Israelites who were exiled and those who were left behind that they were to seek peace and prosperity of the enemy city to which they'd been exiled. They were prayed to pray to the Lord because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, it's hard for us to reconcile with this. It's hard for me to reconcile with it. Trust me, I'm all human in just like you are. But there's nothing that's filtered through God's hands that he doesn't allow at some place to bring about a good for you and me. God does not cause evil. God does not wish upon you enemies. God does not wish upon you or I brokenness and us to be the brunt end of the brokenness that's around us. But God somehow allows things to be filtered through his hands like sand in order for you to continue on your path of development. And God allowed the Babylonians to capture the Israelites and take them into exile for a period of 70 years. But God was working on his people while they were in the hands of the enemy. And so Jeremiah says, pray, pray that Babylon will prosper, because if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. And so God allows, whether it's conflict or enemies, however you want to describe it, to come into our life, and he uses that for the further development of who we are and becoming like him. It's easy to love those who love you. It's difficult to love those who are your enemies. We just came through Easter. It was a great weekend last weekend and Good Friday and all that was involved. That sort of seems a distant memory to me after just seven days. But I think it's interesting when we look at the cross because we can all identify with the cruelness of um, the enemies of Jesus and what they did. And we commemorate it. We thank Jesus that he was willing to suffer on the cross and and do what he did for the behalf of us and to be able to have our sins forgiven. Jesus himself knew what it was to have enemies. Verse 23 of 1 Peter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. If God allowed his son Jesus Christ to be brutally killed on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, then God can allow things in your life to bring about great good as well. By his stripes we are healed. Many times by the wounds of our enemies we are made whole and stronger. And you have to look at it that direction. Otherwise, it'll start to eat you up. The sense of bitterness, taking on revenge, how you can get back at someone or avoid them. Choose to love your enemies. Now, here's the challenge. What does it really mean to pragmatically love our enemies? So, I just decided we'd try to be real practical today, not take a lot of time on this because it's sort of uh, sort of one of those YBH kind of moments. Do you know what a YBH moment is? Yes, but how? I see a lot of nods sometimes when I speak on truth from scriptures like I hear you pastor, I hear amen, amen. That's good. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Yes. But inside you're saying to yourself, YBH, YBH. Yes, but how? How do I do this? How do I love enemies? Well, there's a lot of things we could say about it, especially about reconciliation, trying to find wholeness. I'm not even going to go there. That's maybe for another day. I just want to be pragmatic on a few things. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus does not say, just stop it. Hold back. Just don't go there in your spirit. Don't go there in your mind. Don't go there with your actions. Just, just, just stop it. Don't, don't hate them. Love them. He says you need to turn towards something. You need to turn towards action. It's mentioning here to pray for those who persecute you. But let's start our list this way. Some suggestions on how to love your enemies. First, greet them instead of avoiding them. Pragmatic. I'm not going to say anything to them today. I would say, for instance, the enemy is down the hallway in your work environment. You choose not to go down that hallway. There's no reason because there's friction between the two of you. Well, let's say you stop avoiding the hallway and you normally would take it. And when you see them, you don't have to love them, embrace them and say you're the best person in the world. Just greet them instead of avoiding them. Scripture teaches of enemies a lot of times on this personal level as very close to home family members. Are there family members that you avoid greeting or having some kind of conversation with? Because it's just a little awkward and you choose not to show up in those environments. It's easier that way. It may be a son or a daughter. It may be a grandparent. It may be an aunt or an uncle. It may be another extended family member. Greet them when you have a family gathering. 
And you don't have to put on this fake smiley face necessarily, but you should be warm and inviting. We talked about it in our spiritual warfare series. You have an enemy and it's not who you think. It's not that person. It's not that person. You have an enemy, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, and the adversary wants to bring division between you and other people. Don't let your real enemy have his sway in your life. And something as simply as greeting someone and not avoiding them can be tremendously helpful. In fact, even in the last month, I've heard some stories, even as it relates to God working in our local body here, our church family, where there's been some awkwardness and God began to heal just by a simple acknowledgement and greeting and having a conversation where there weren't conversations for years. Okay, so greet them instead of avoiding them. How about number two? Disarm them by doing what they least expect. Now, this is one you can sort of have some fun with. All right? The Sermon on the Mount was also recorded in another gospel in Luke. So actually, in Luke, he has sort of an angle from it, maybe where he was seated when Jesus was speaking to all those people. And he calls it more the Sermon on the Plain, the low level. And he, he records some different kinds of aspects to this message. I believe it's the same message that's found in Luke. But it's in, it's in the Luke text of this that we find these words in Luke six twenty seven: Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then you know this one. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. We've all heard that before. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But there's sort of some fun in this. Be the unpredictable person. All right. And the idea that you're not out for this violent punishment in your life. All right. The slap actually, it's not a hit. It's not a punch. It's funny. I was reading this week of a, of a, a guy who used to be a prize fighter and then he became a preacher. And so he was preaching in some circles and somebody didn't like him and he was throwing insults at him. He says, I just want to take my fist and knock you out. And the preacher who was all dust decked up in a suit and stuff he says he says well we'll have at it right here and the guy took a big whack on him and he went down on one knee and he stood back up and he said you want another try at it look over here he took a big whack at him like that he went down on the other knee the man stood up he took off his coat he rolled up his sleeves and he says that's all the instruction jesus gave me (laughs) (laughs) and he took that guy to the shed real fast dad (laughs) do something unexpected what would cause them to just pause in their tracks this idea of slapping is actually not a punch it's an insult kind of idea if someone slaps you with an insult this way then get back up and they insult you again so be it it's like what why didn't you come back at me? Why didn't you get mean at me? 
Why don't you try to take revenge? That's what the world does. Who are you? Who are you? And they too may be thunderstruck by coming across someone who practices the teachings of Jesus because the life of Jesus is dwelling within them. So disarm them by doing what they least expect. Number three, do good to them to promote their healing. Do good to them to promote their healing. It's interesting if uh, you look at this that it, it isn't just this simple, hey, you know, suck it up and don't um, uh, hate your enemies, love your enemies. Right on the heels of all this, he's acknowledging to them their need to participate in action of doing good for the other person. Now, let me pause here for a second. I think one of the most beneficial things, that whole thing of you have an enemy and it's not who you think, you really have to humanize people. Not demean them, not look down on them, but you have to contextualize them. It's sort of like when you struggle with lust. You need to contextualize the person and not objectify the person. There goes somebody's daughter. So why am I lusting over that person, right? And this is what happens all the time with sin. It just sort of seeks hiddenness and and objectification. Otherwise, if somebody's your enemy, you're going, okay, they're human, which means they're fallen. They're sinful. I'm human. I'm fallen. I'm sinful. I need to see them as God sees them, not in some light, you know, type of, oh, just suck it up, be happy and think, you know, look at it. It's like, no, God's working on them, too. I wonder what they're wrestling with in the inner part of their being. I wonder how um, they're doing with overcoming the vices that they can't stand that they have. All right. So you're contextualizing who they are as a human being, and then you're identifying in your own humanness as an equal sinner at the foot of the cross needing Jesus. And so when you do good to them, you have to get yourself in a mindset of saying that God is working to transform and heal their life, even if they're belligerent and they're God-haters. Okay, And so you're trying, in one sense, to promote their healing by doing good to them. But this exhortation to love your enemies is being followed up immediately with this action. And it says this in the, in the Luke version of it. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who... From whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." It's said that the greatest act of kindness is extending mercy. Mercy is not getting what you're owed. Now, grace is getting above and beyond that which you don't deserve. But you start with mercy. You want justice. Well, justice, and we can, we can put out justice pretty quick. But what did Jesus do? He held off on ultimate justice, providing Christ for us to be able to reconcile us to him. 
and he had mercy on us. And so Jesus wants you to have mercy upon your enemy. And by having mercy on your enemy, you're extending the greatest act of kindness. But that act of mercy needs to have action to it by doing something good for them. And when you do something good, then in return, they end up, I think, at times, maybe not immediately, going on a pathway of healing in their own personhood, in their own life. So, do good to them. Love your enemies. I'm going to love my enemies. I can't do it. I can't hold off on it. I found myself doing that recently. It's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to feel those thoughts. I don't want to think those thoughts. I'm not going to go there. And, and it's hard when you're just trying to resist without taking some action maybe. And it doesn't mean that you need to be all lovey-dovey over them again. It may just be that you do some kind of act of good. All right? And as you begin to do those acts of goodness, it begins to change who you are as well. So I'm going to add number four. Refuse to speak evil of them, vowing silence. Wow. This one's hard. Somebody done you wrong recently? And it may be not been some mean, cruel act. It may be that they just ruffled your feathers the wrong way and you would like to speak ill about them. You would like to post something about them. <laughs> right? Especially after you saw them post something that's not indicative of who you really think they are. Refuse to speak evil of your enemies. And many times it just takes a vow of silence. The Lord's at work. He's your defense. Doesn't mean let people step all over you. It's not saying that. But you know when you are speaking ill of somebody and it's in part because you're trying to be vengeful and you're thinking it's going to make you feel better. A vow of silence. Number five, thank God for them. For he is at work in you. Thank God for them, for he is at work in you. This comes back to realizing that you need Babylon. And Babylon needs you. God allows enemies in our life to be able to build us in some ways that maybe something else. Do you, do you think that Christ's obedience to the cross, to the point of death, there was a development within him as he was found in his human nature. I know he was fully divine as well. But yes, there was development in being obedient to the Father in all things. Thank God for he's at work at you. So this week when you come across a new enemy, oh, I can't believe they did that. I never thought of him like that, but I can't. Oh. You just say, well, thank you, Jesus, for bringing another person into my life to make me better, huh? <laughs> I don't mean to be giddy about it, but you have to take the big picture, the eternal perspective of what God's doing in our life. It's not being dismissive of the pain and the hurt and the harm that maybe some enemies you have are doing to you. The Lord knows. But you can allow that, which the adversary means for evil, to be used by good for the development of who you are as a child of the Father in heaven, as a kingdom person not as a worldly person. Number six is pray for them by leaning into God's grace. 
And this is where it comes back very strong again in the whole aspect of contextualizing them. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. They are human. They're brokenness. I don't know what they've gone through. I don't know why they're that way or what experiences that they had that caused them to be that way. But I'm going to put them in the human camp and I'm in the human camp. I'm now going to pray for them and I'm going to lean into God's grace. As much as his grace has been bestowed upon me, I am going to pray for them. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you need to have these long, brought out prayers. It may just be a popcorn kind of prayers like, Lord, bless them in their day. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's behind the scene. I don't know. And maybe you've heard me share this story before. I don't know what's in their cargo bay. Having just flown back from uh, the Midwest last night late, you know, the idea where you get into the tube and you're riding up there in the seats and then you're mindful that underneath the seats is a cargo bay where there's a bunch of stuff stored. Hopefully your bags are down there in a good condition, right? And the story was told of an individual who was on a plane ride, and they, were, <laughs> when you fly southwest, you get to pick your plane, your seat. You guys fly southwest? It's cheap airline. And um, I like getting on at just enough time where I can see open seats, but I also know where the troublemakers might be. <laughs> what are troublemakers? People that like to be loud with their light on in the middle of the night. Or maybe there's some other conversation, something going on. So you're trying to pick your seat. Well, this person, he got on the plane, and there was a lot of uh, turmoil happening with a dad and some of his kids. And long short story short of it, he got really frustrated, and he finally put them in their place and said, can't you take calm your kid down and take control of them on this plane? And the dad proceeded to tell them that they were on a family vacation. They had driven from up northwest of Florida, and there was an accident, and their mom had been killed. And they were flying back home. And their mom was in a box in the cargo bay. Now, wouldn't you feel terrible if that happened to you? And this comes back to my mind so many times when I want to say, Get your act together! What's your problem? Come on, you guys see that. You say that to people, don't you? Please. I don't know what's in their cargo bay. I don't know what they're carrying. Brokenness, problems. Pray for them by leaning into God's grace. And when I realize what God's done in my life, that grace enables me to extend grace. And I can pray. Lord, I don't know what's going on with my enemy. You do. I pray that you would encourage them in this very hour, whatever that may be. The last one, number seven, is ask God to bless them as he would bless you. I, um, I find a lot of help in this because a lot of times that's about all I can do is say, Lord, bless them. I'm not going to take it in myself, a spirit of revenge, vengefulness, spite, attitude. But in the moment that it comes with my enemy, I'm just saying, Lord, bless them. I came across this story of a, a, uh, an, a pastor who was sharing about a person in her, his congregation who um, her husband ended up having an affair. And uh, this affair had been hidden for a period of time. And, and she was, of course, just heartbroken about it, busted and blew up her marriage. And uh, she knew she needed to forgive her husband who had left her for num- uh, another woman a number of years ago. 
And she not only found out that this had happened, but when she turned to her friends, she found out that her friends knew about the affair and actually had been helping him hide it for a period of time, which was a double whammy, as you can imagine. And so she told the pastor, she said, I finally sat down and and I wrote uh, to these four friends that had become enemies, if you will, people that weren't out for her good uh, welfare. And she said this, she said, today I wrote to four people the Lord brought to my mind that I needed to pray for, ask for a blessing for them. And I felt the drive to write to them and tell them I had asked God for them to receive a blessing from God. At first, it was the hardest thing I had done in so long. But then I started writing the quick message, telling them after hearing a message, didn't say on what, that I was writing to tell them I'd ask God to give them a special blessing. Three of the four people have claimed to be Christians, but they all contributed to my ex's infidelity and adultery. Yet after writing this email, these emails, I felt better and more at peace. Now part of us goes, well, what? how did they respond? Well, you're not going to know the end of the story. I don't know how they responded. But for her, she was able to extend a blessing. She didn't have to get into the nuts and the bolts of everything, but she needed to let them know she was extending a blessing to them. Is there somebody you need to extend a blessing to? Maybe you've not described them as an enemy in your life, but you need to get out of this predicament in your own soul. Jesus knows the predicaments that we get into. He had it around him. He had enemies all over the place. People were his friends that turned against him, even... Think about how his heart must have gone towards Judas in the betrayal. But he chose to live with the will of his father. We as Christians need to take the shocking statement of Jesus to love our enemies seriously. John thirteen thirty four: a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He said, what? Love your enemies. I'm going to invite the van to come up. They're going to recap the fire in our soul because the fire in our soul really is the spirit of God. And and I came across a video as a simplistic little animated video and for whatever reason i couldn't get it out of my head this week and so as they come i'm going to share this with you if maybe the words didn't strike you maybe this little image will stay with you this week as you seek to love your enemies